Thank you for tuning in to the audio podcast of Renaissance Church, a new church plant located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please check out our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like more information about joining the launch team of Renaissance, or if you would like information on how you can partner with us to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. All right, how are you guys doing today? Good. Awesome. Good to hear that there are three people here. Um, Awesome. So if I don't know you yet, my name is Graham, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. I'm glad to be with you guys here today. Uh, If you're new here, just want to welcome you here. Um, And I want to begin our time by asking you a question. So I want to begin by asking you to think about what makes you anxious. So what makes you anxious? Or what are your fears? All right, so you know, maybe you're terrified of heights or spiders or something like that. Uh, maybe if you're a guy here, you're like terrified to talk to girls, right? I know, I don't know, probably, I know someone here is afraid of that. Um, but that's not exactly what we're talking about here because we all get nervous, right? These are, there, there are all types of things that make us nervous or they frighten us. And those are not the type of fears that I'm talking about. So I want, to, I want you to think about anxiety as in what makes you stressed or what troubles you. So maybe you get stressed when you have exams. Uh, I know I do. Or you worry about, you, uh, about not having enough money. Or you worry about what others are going to think about you. Uh, what is it for you that makes you anxious? Uh, because anxiety has a lot to do with uncertainty, right? We're unsure of what will happen next. And so maybe we avoid certain circumstances or situations. And so I'll give you a personal example for myself. So for me, I get a lot of anxiety when I have to do a lot. I have a lot on my plate. I get a lot of anxiety. And so if work and school and family life, they're starting to kind of pile up, then I get really stressed, sometimes to the point of being able to like just completely, I can't focus on anything. And sometimes I even get sick because of my stress. Um, my fear in that, though, it's not work, right? I'm not scared of doing work. I have a fear of what will happen if I don't get that work done um, or if I don't do a good job of all those things. So I worry about, what other, about how others are going to see me in that case. So maybe they'll see me as someone who is lazy or who does a poor job. And so I get stressed because I value what others think of me as a worker. And also, I'm terrified to talk to girls, too. But um, no, but so the thing with uh, many of our fears is that they're actually rooted in something good, right? It's a, it's a good thing to do a good job, it's, and it's good not to be lazy. But the issue is, is that our fears come in when we make those good things ultimate things. So. Uh, Try to think of something that gives you anxiety or stress, and then we're going to come back to that a little bit later. So all that to say, today we're talking about fears that we see in one of the Psalms in the Bible. And I want to be clear that when we are talking about fears today, we're not talking about anxiety disorders like uh, PTSD or panic attacks. Um, We do believe that Jesus is the answer for those as well, and that counseling and other professional help may be necessary tools. But when we talk about fears and anxiety today, 
uh, I want us to think more about the everyday worries that we face or common things that make us anxious or stressed out. And so, as James said, if you are new here today, we are continuing through a series in the book of Psalms, which we've called Overflow of the Heart. And we're looking at a, uh, a number of different types of psalms that we see in the Bible, psalms or songs. So there, we've covered some psalms of confession, psalms of praise, missional psalms. And today we're going to be talking about psalms of lament. And so these are songs that are written about someone's grief or their sorrow. And if you think that sounds like really weird or depressing, uh, then you might not be familiar with modern-day lamenter Taylor Swift because all of her songs are about like her breaking up with someone and she's all sad about it. You guys are a tough crowd today. Um, <laughs> anyway, not that I would have anything to know about uh, her songs or anything. But, uh, but anyways, the, the psalms that we're going uh, to be focusing on today is, is Psalm 3. And it talks about a king in the Bible named David as he laments or he grieves over the betrayal of his son and the fear that he's facing in his life as his, as his life is in danger from people. Um, I don't know where you guys are coming from or what your experience has been with religion or the church, but if your experience has been with Christianity, that uh, Christianity is just this other religion that is trying to suppress your feelings or wants you to just unquestionably behave a certain way, then I think you'll be in for a surprise. So we called, we called this series Overflow of the Heart because the Psalms show us authentic reactions to real-life situations. They show us that we can be real when we communicate with God and that God desires to know us as we express an overflow of our heart. And so I want us to pay attention to the real emotion that's happening here. Uh, a little bit about laments. So I recently read a book called A Praying Life, and they, in that book, it talks a little bit, it has a couple chapters that are talking about lamenting. And the author points out, he says that uh, laments, they often make us feel uncomfortable, right? Because um, we don't feel like that's how we should talk to God. We don't feel like we should be uh, that raw with him. Uh, uh, but in, in fact, lamenting is recognizing the wrong in the world. And it's crying out to God in that. And the author says, he says, lamenting might seem disrespectful, but in fact, they are filled with faith, a raw, pure form of faith that simply takes God at his word. So if that feels uncomfortable at all, then know that it's okay to feel that way. That's a real emotion. Um, but let's look at our responses when we feel that way. Our response is that we ought to run towards God because he is our hope and our salvation. So the main thing that I want us to see today is that our fears, that in our fears and our sorrows, we can turn to God. In our fears and our sorrows, we can turn to God. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through our psalm for today. So if you have a Bible, um, I would invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 3. Uh, psalm chapter 3 is where we're going to be for today. And if you're looking for it in, the, in your Bible, you can feel free to use the table of contents at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, or you can ask someone close to you where to find it. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, there's some on the seats that you can feel free to just take home with you. Uh, that's our gift for you today. So again, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 3 for today. As you guys are turning there, I want us to just begin by giving us a little bit of uh, context for our scripture. So uh, the beginning of the psalm, it says that David wrote this when he fled from, his, from Absalom, his son. 
And so this is telling us when and why David is writing this psalm. And so we can find that story in the book of 2 Samuel. It's an Old Testament book. And if you're not familiar who, with who David was, David was a king of Israel, and he was perhaps the greatest king that Israel ever had. Except David, he ended up making a lot of horrible mistakes, and that had a lasting impact on his whole family. And we talked about some of those mistakes a few weeks ago when we covered the Psalms of Confession. So if you want to know more about that, you can find them online and listen to what happened in that story. Um, but following David's mistakes, what we start to see is we start to see the consequences of David's life, uh, uh, the, sorry, the consequences of David's sin as his life unfolds. And what we see is that David's family starts to enter into this perpetual cycle of sin. So here's what happens. So David's oldest son, his name is Amnon, and he ends up raping his sister Tamar. And so David finds out about this, and he's really angry about it, but he actually doesn't really do anything about it. He kind of just lets it slide. And so David's son Absalom, he says, I'm going to take things into my own hands, and he decides, I'm going to kill Amnon. And so he kills him, and he, because of uh, his uh, fear of his father, he ends up running away to a remote city, and he's there for a little while. And three years pass, and David is kind of torn about the situation, right? He's, on one hand, he's sad about the death of his son and that his other son has run away. But on the other hand, he's kind of relieved that Amnon paid for what he did to Tamar. So after Absalom killed his oldest son, Amnon, uh, David, he shows mercy on him, and he welcomes him back home. He says, hey, come on back. You don't need to run any longer. And so I mention all of this to just give us a bit of an idea of the relationship between David and his son Absalom. Because here is where we start to begin to see uh, the betrayal by Absalom. So Absalom, he comes back to Jerusalem, and in the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel, it tells us that Absalom, he would get up early every morning, and he would stand at the gate where people would come to meet the king if they had a dispute. So people would come up and they would say, hey, I have a matter for the king. And so, I don't know, maybe they were a farmer or something, and they would say something like, um, the other day I saw, uh, I saw Stephen on my land, and I witnessed him steal my donkey. How dare he? Um, so Absalom, he would say, okay, good, like, where, where are you from? And so they would say, I'm from, like, Laval or something. Uh, and Absalom would say, hey, yeah, sorry, can't do anything about it. There's no one here that takes care of cases from Laval. Uh, but then he would say, hey, listen, I think you have a really good case to be made. He says, if I were king, I'd make sure that there was justice for you. You know, there's no way that Stephen can go around stealing people's donkeys like that. He says, I'd make sure that Stephen brings your ass back to Laval. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he would go on saying this to all the people he, who would come to the gate. He would say, I am a better judge than the, the judge that we have. I could, I could solve your case. And, and verse 6 of 2 Samuel, it says, here, here's an important thing. He says, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so after his father had 
forgiven him and he welcomed him back home, Absalom begins conspiring against David by turning the king's people away from him and trying to win them over to himself. And I was listening to someone speak on this passage this week, and he said, he said, Absalom was after their loyalty because he was after his father's throne. He wants to be king. He wants to be the ruler. And so he's planning on kicking his father off the throne by winning over the hearts of the people of Israel, and he's going to start a revolution against David. And so the Bible says that Absalom, he goes to Hebron, where, he, uh, where his followers, they pronounce him king. And then David is forced to flee for his life from Jerusalem because in order for Absalom to take the throne, the king must die. And so Absalom betrays his own father and king by taking his throne and is now on the hunt to kill him. And that's where we pick up with our psalm for today. So uh, David has fled from Jerusalem, and we see Absalom's followers are trying to kill him. And that was a little bit of a long intro, uh, but let's read what it says in Psalm 3. Everyone still with me? Good. Three people again. Um, here's what it says. Uh, this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, you are my shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He says, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. All right, so um, I have three points that I want us to touch on today from our text. And so if you are someone who likes to take notes, uh, this is your time to shine. Um, so I want us to take a look at three aspects of this text here today. So first, we see the cry. Second, we see the confidence. And third, we see the concern. So the cry, the confidence, and the concern. Um, so first of all, the cry. What we see in the, the first two verses is David's cry out to God. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? He says, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So this is a desperate plea for God's help. This is David saying, God, I can't do this. I need you. He says, how many are my foes? And in my Bible, that's followed by an exclamation mark, not a question mark. And so he's, he's not asking literally how many people are opposing me, right? It's rhetorical. It's him saying, God, there are so many people against me. It's kind of like what we do when we're in a tough situation, right? We start asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. Um, what's, what's probably the most common question that we ask when we're in pain? Is why, right? Have you ever been, like, just super sick? You've been really sick for just a long time, and you're so exhausted by the end of it all, and all you can do is just call it. You're like, why? Like, why is this happening, right? You're not, you're not really looking for an answer, though. 
you're, it's not like you're actually hoping that God is gonna say, well, it's actually because the ham sandwich you had was three weeks past its expiry date, and you have food poisoning now. Um, no, you're not really looking for answers. You're expressing your anguish. You're expressing the emotions that you're going through. And that's what's going on here with David. He's expressing the emotions that he's going through by crying out to God. And for David here, I'm sure that there are a lot of emotions that's go that are going on for him right now, right? He's, he's just been betrayed by his son, and so he's probably feeling sorrow. He's lost his throne, his family, his friends, and the people of Israel. So along with grief, he's probably feeling anger. And then he's fleeing for his life. And so he's probably feeling a lot of fear. And so what does he do with all this? He cries out to God. He says, God, this is my situation. This is why I'm afraid. And notice he doesn't even ask for anything. He's just saying, God, this is what's going on. There are so many people after me. And, and we look at this, and this tells us something very important about God, that, that we can go to him at our worst, in our messiest times, and when we are most broken, angry, distressed, and fearful. In our fears and our sorrows, we can turn to God. And here's why that's important. It's because God can relate to the struggles that you're going through. God doesn't just tell us, hey, fix up yourself, and then you come to me. No, God can in every way relate to you, to who we are and what we're going through. And he says to us, just come as you are. You don't need to put on a facade. You don't need to pretend like you have it all together because you don't. So come to me in your fear and in your anger and in your pain because God wants to be your God in all of that. Another reason why this is important is that our cry to God, it recognizes his sovereignty in whatever situation that you're going through. Because it would be, it would be pretty foolish to, act, to go to him if he couldn't fix our situation, right? Like if you came to me and you said, hey Graham, uh, bad news, we just lost our baritone singer for the St. John Baptiste Festival tomorrow. We need you to fill in. I would say to you, I would say that is bad news because first of all, I can't sing. Um, I don't have any idea what a baritone singer is, and I couldn't even tell you where to begin to look for one, right? You wouldn't come to me if I couldn't fix your situation. So why would we go to God if he can't fix our situation? And crying out to God, it recognizes his sovereignty over even the bleakest of situations. And so when we cry out to God, he is, he is honored in our utter dependence for him for everything. All right, next point. The confidence. So first, David cries out to God, and next we see David's confidence. So his despair, it turns into assurance. He goes from helplessness uh, to courageous. And if you know anything about David, you might think, yeah, this is the man who killed the greatest warrior of the Philistines. This is the man who, as a shepherd, he killed a bear and a lion to protect his sheep, and he was the king of Israel. He just needs to kind of get it all together and realize the strength just in me the whole time. He just needs to pull it out from inside him. And that's not at all why David has confidence, right? David's confidence isn't in himself, it's in God. So let's read a little bit about what he says. He says, but you, O Lord, you are my shield about me. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me. I lay down and slept. 
I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. So that's why David has this confidence. It's not because of what he did or his own courage or strength. It's because of God's strength. It's God who David has confidence in. And so I want to spend a little bit of time here taking a look at why David has confidence in God and how he reminds himself of that. So we're going to walk through four reasons why David has confidence in God. So here are a few subpoints. First of all, David has confidence in God as his defense. He says, you are a shield about me. Or other, other translations will say, you are a shield around me. So what does it mean to have a shield around you? Obviously, a shield is used to protect against an attack. Most shields that I can think of anyway, they don't really go around you, right? They go in front of you. So not being a shield expert, um, I listened to someone who uh, spoke on this, and they said this. They said that there is a type of shield that goes uh, around you, and I looked it up, and this is what it looks like. So it looks kind of like that. Um, that's my LARPing group on Saturdays. No, it's not. Um, the idea here is that this, this kind of shield would be used to protect you as you move forward. Uh, so it's not meant, meant simply as uh, defense for hiding behind, but as protection as you go forward. So as you're going into danger. And think about uh, maybe like a celebrity or a politician as they're trying to make their way through a crowd of fans or paparazzi. The job of their security is to get them through it. It's to move them forward. And so this is kind of the picture that we see David is talking about. He says, God, you are my security and you will bring me through my fears. And he acknowledges, yes, you bring me into danger, but you bring me into it to bring me through it. And know that Nowhere in Scripture are we promised to have an easy life that's free of danger. But also know that the dangers in our life, they don't shock or surprise God, right? God is completely in control of them, and he brings us into them to bring us through them. God isn't just this shield for you to hide behind, but as a shield that brings you through your fears. And so this is important because as we obey God, as we follow him where he leads us, he's going to bring us through our fears. Then if we jump down to verse 7, David says, God, you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. And really, that sounds quite harsh and violent. Um, but this is, uh, there's contextually here, there is another meaning for that. So first, if, if you were to strike someone on the cheek in those days, that would be considered a sign of public rebuke um, or public reproof. And it would be uh, for you to rebuke someone for something that they said or they did. And so likewise, here, David is saying, God, you rebuke my enemies because they're after my life. So rebuking, uh, rebuking our enemies is another way that God is our defense. Second, let's talk about the breaking, breaking the teeth of the wicked. Again, that sounds very harsh, but this is something that would be a common thing to do to animals, to wild animals, usually to neutralize their attack. So you might perhaps do this if you had wolves or uh, bears or lions that were threatening to attack 
uh, your sheep so that they would not kill your flock. Um, and I think if we look at the book of Job, it gives us uh, a good glimpse of the purpose behind this. Here's what it says in Job. He says, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his mouth. So this isn't God like viciously and brutally attacking David's enemies. This is David saying, the wicked have no hold on me. God has disarmed my enemies and they have no power against me because God is my defense. So David has confidence in God because God is our defense and he is our security. Next, David says, God, you are my shield and my glory. What does that mean? What, what does it mean that God is our glory? You can think about it this way. Imagine, imagine you are a, the quarterback for a football team. Uh, it's a Super Bowl, and your team is down by like four points. And it's the last play of the game, and you're like really deep in your end. You get the ball, and there's like no one open at all. So you start to run around, and you're about to get sacked, and you break a tackle, and then you break another one and you're being chased down the field and you stiff arm this guy and you hurdle over another guy and then you make into, into the end zone and your, your team wins the game. And everyone's cheering for you because you just pull off the impossible, right? Well, who in that story gets the glory? You do, right? You're the one who pulled off this huge play and you won the game for the team. And I'm sorry if you're not into sports analogies uh, and you don't get that. Uh, if, you're not, if that's you, maybe try and think of like the best thing to happen in gardening or something. I don't know. Um, right? But if someone says this view is glorious, it means it's breathtaking. It's, ins- it's awe-inspiring and it's amazing. And that word glory, it means weight or significance. So what David is saying is that God is our glory. He is his significance in life. God is what is amazing and beautiful for him. And why this is important to note is that David is someone who had it all. God had elevated him to the highest position as king, and he had everything. And he is willing to say of all of that, none of this is my glory. None of this is my significance. God is my glory. He is all that matters to me. And that's how he can put his fears away. He can put his fears away because he realizes even if he lost his life, he would have God. He could have it all or nothing, and he would have all he needed because God is his glory, his significance. And I think this is something that is so important for us to understand, right? Our situation may change, but God doesn't, right? Because at this point, what has changed for David? Nothing. He's still in the situation that he began with. He is still being hunted down by his enemies. He's still fleeing for his life. And yet he says, God, I'm scared, but you are good. Even in my fears, God, you don't change. You are what is significant. So when we are stressed and we're anxious, our fears, our fears should alert us that maybe we have made something our glory instead of God. And usually that happens by making something that is a good thing into an ultimate thing. But when God is our glory, our fears become insignificant. Next we see that God is our encouragement. And I love the picture that David David gives us here. What does he say? He says, he's the lifter of our head. He's the lifter of my head. 
Because what do we typically do when we're discouraged or depressed or ashamed? We walk around like this. We put our head down and we talk like this. We're all sad. We act like, we act like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? Um, but what does David tell us that God does? He, God lifts our heads. He's our encouragement. And how does he encourage him? Well, this seems to be directly tied to the next verse. Verse 4 says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And I think this gives us a very interesting picture here. David cries to God, and he answers him from his holy hill. So where is God lifting his head to? To his holy hill. If you lifted your head, you'd be looking up to the holy hill. That is where the temple was and where the presence of God was. So God lifts his head to the place where God dwells. So, so David's encouragement is in the very presence of God. It's in the fact that God has answered his cry and his presence is with him. And why this is so crucial to understand is because when we're stuck in our fears, encouragement can be nearly impossible to find. But know that when we're discouraged because of our fears, and when our fears become overwhelming, God is the lifter of our heads. His presence is our encouragement, and we can turn to him, the lifter of our heads. And then last, God is our sustainer. And so what's notable about this is not that David just knows this. It's not he's just writing this down. It's that he acts upon it. He tells us that he lay down to sleep and he woke again. God gives him rest in all of that. And you may not have had to flee for your life before. Maybe you have, but you can, uh, you can imagine that if thousands and thousands of people were trying to kill you, you would probably want to sleep with one eye open or both. But the same principle applies for us as well because typically when we're anxious about something, we tend not to be able to sleep, right? And that's why when we choose not to let something bother us. We say, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. And in a similar way, David, he doesn't lose sleep over his fears, except the main difference here is not that David just shrugs off his, concerned, off his concerns. No, it's that he goes to God with them. And he recognizes that God is the one who sustains him, and he gives him rest in the midst of his troubles. So David going to sleep is him trusting that God will protect him and sustain him through the night as thousands of people are trying to kill him. And when we're exhausted and we're overwhelmed by our fears, we can turn to God for rest and to sustain us just as David did. So, David finds his confidence in God as he is his defense, his glory, his encouragement, and his sustainer. So in all of the fear that he is facing and his grief and his sorrow and lamenting, David, he finds hope. And his hope and confidence are in God. And likewise, we can have hope and confidence in God because he is never changing. He is our defense, our glory, our encouragement, and our sustainer. And in our fears and our sorrows, we can turn to him. First, so first we talked about David's cry, then his confidence in God, and now we're going to close by talking about David's concern. And now when I say concern here, I don't mean that David finds something concerning or alarming, although I'm sure David had many concerns about the situation that he's in. Uh, 
What I mean by concerning, though, is what is this all about for David? Why, what is the reason that he's writing this psalm, or what does the psalm concern? And so if we look at the psalm as a whole, we see that it is basically sandwiched between these two key phrases in verse 2 and then in verse 8. First he says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And then he says in verse 8, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So David's concern in writing this psalm is the saving nature of God. Both his cry and his confidence are in God to save, that God is the Savior, and he can deliver him from this situation because nothing is impossible for him. David recognizes that God is bigger than his fears, and so in his lamenting and his crying out to God, he says, God, let your saving nature be known. And this is fully in response to his enemies who say, even God can't save you. David says, no, you're wrong. Salvation belongs to my God, and he loves to save. But not only is David concerned with the saving nature of God, David is concerned with the saving nature of God for his people. And that's important. Check out the last sentence here. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And so this isn't about David anymore. This is about God saving power for his people. David has put away any concern of his for his kingship, his family, and even for his own life. And he says, God, save your people. And this is the selfless kind of love that we ought to have for one another. One another a love that is concerned with others and not for ourselves. So I want us to take, I want to, to take us back to the beginning about your fears. And again, I don't know what everyone here fears. Maybe you're afraid of sharing the gospel with someone you know, or maybe you're afraid of apologizing to someone that you've sinned against, or maybe it's the stress of exams or it's relationships or whatever it is. Um, you have an enemy that is telling you God can't save you from that. And that might be spiritual attack that you're facing, or that might be because, like we talked about before, you have found your glory in something else other than God. And you've made something more significant than God, and that's why you have these fears. But understand this. We have a God that loves to save. God loves to save, and he will save those who will cry out to him for their help and who will find their confidence in him. In your fears, remind yourself that God is your defense, your glory, your encouragement, and your sustainer, because in our fears and our sorrows, we can turn to God. And in all of this, I want to remind you of another king, a king who was also betrayed, a king who lamented over his betrayal, who cried out to God when his enemies seized and killed him, a king who was confident in God, who said, not my will, but yours. A king who made it his concern to put on the full display of the saving nature of God for his people as he died on the cross for their sins. And this king is Jesus, and I want to read you some of what the Gospel of Matthew says about him. So Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest, uh, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. So Jesus cried out to God as he was about to be betrayed. He said, God, I trust you in this. Let not my will be done, but yours. And Jesus was then arrested, and he was put on trial, and he was beaten, and he was mocked, and he was led to his death, and he proved to be the better David, the better king of Israel. We're going to read from Matthew 27. It says, over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. What are they saying to him? They're saying there's no salvation for him in God. And Jesus could have come down off that cross and he could have destroyed them all, but he stayed up there and, and he died because his concern was the saving nature of God for his people. So Jesus died for our sins and God raised him to life three days later. And he says, whoever puts uh, their confidence in me, not in their own strength, will be saved. And so we can have victory over our sin and over death and our fears because his Holy Spirit lives in those who trust in him. So how do we need to respond to this? What, what does this mean for us? Well, um, before we think, yes, how do I conquer my fears? I think we need to understand that we were once on the other end of the story here. We were not like David in this story. We were more like Absalom, trying to overthrow the king. We thought we would make a, a much better king than God. And so we decided we're going to do things our own way. We're going to be the better judge of our lives. And so we have betrayed the one true king by finding our glory in things other than in Jesus. And our betrayal deserves nothing but death. And yet because of the king's mercy on us, because the king died in our place, we are offered forgiveness from God. We offer new life in him if we will cry out to God and find our confidence in him. Because God is concerned 
with his saving nature for his people. And so let us find hope in that in the midst of our fears. Let God be your defense, your glory, your encouragement, and your sustainer.